2: for free shipping and 365-day returns. It will go
0: back.
1: I could have gone longer, but I don't want to punish the people too much for choosing to listen to the show. (laughs) My name is Kaveh Hoda. At least I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I am the host of this little... Relatively informal, irreverent, humor adjacent medical podcast. Today we're going to be talking about airlines, medicine, what they have in common, what they can learn from each other. We're going to be talking to a pilot in a little bit, but before we do that, I'm going to introduce my co-host for this uh, episode, uh, a good friend of mine, someone who long time listeners will uh, definitely remember and know, but. A lot of you guys don't. It's Raja Jagadeson. Raja Jagadeeson. Hey, buddy. How are you?
3: I'm doing great, Kaveh. Thanks for having me on tonight.
1: Associate Chief of Staff for Education for the VA of Northern California, Associate Professor of UC Davis, a doctor of internal medicine, and most importantly, a good friend of mine. Hi, buddy. It's good to see your face again.
3: Oh, it's good to be here, Kaveh. Thank you so much for having me. It's a uh... It's uh, great to see you and talk to you. And we, I think we have a really interesting topic tonight.
1: Um, can I be honest? Uh, your beard has gotten a lot grayer since we last spoke. <laughs> it is <laughs> like, impressively so. Like
3: You know, I, I could put my work, but that's not true. It's my three children. I, I we should, You know this. I do. We should have stopped at two.
1: Oh, you know, <laughs> I think I did actually read once that the, <laughs> and I knew this going into it. I have three kids as well. And I did know this going into it, but they have shown that like peak happiness is at like two kids. Is and that they... serious? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's like w- whatever one study yeah. showed that. So who knows, you know? But then like the happiness went down after that. I'm gonna be honest with you, though. I'm I'm pretty good with it, um, except for the yeah. fact that right now sickness has entered the Hoda household, and I'm basically watching it tear through the family, knowing it's coming to me eventually, and there's nothing I can do about it because no matter how many times I wash my hands or anything, the kids will cough directly into my eyeballs. So there's like nothing I can do <laughs> to to stop this infection. It's going to happen. But other than that, it's it's pretty rad, man. How are, How's it going over there with the, the three Jagadizan and boys? Oh, no,
3: it's fantastic. I'm joking around. I love them. I love having three boys running around the house. It's like living in a blender, just constantly things running around all the time. Uh, I was talking to one of my ER friends recently and um. We knew this year was coming. I mean, we 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 tried to protect our children from viruses for two and a half years, and now none of them have an immune system so prepared for anything. It's just like the largest Petri dish ever. It's insane. <laughs> we, we, we knew it was coming.
1: You can ask you a question, though. People keep mentioning this sort of like offhandedly, like we're weaker because we haven't gotten sick in so long. I don't really buy that, but I do feel like we just forgot how crappy it is to get sick all the time. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. I don't miss having colds all the goddamn time. Like, uh, and I've had like three non-COVID like viral illnesses in like the span of six to eight weeks, since like you know, the kids are in school and they're dealing with everything and they're being exposed to stuff and bring it back. I, I tell you, I'm glad we're in a better place now that this is happening, but I do not I did not miss. I did not miss all the colds and all the viruses and all that shit.
3: No, you're a hundred percent right. You're hundred percent right. No, I don't think the human immune system has changed in the last two and a half years. None of that's happened. Um, no, you're. but my first child, I actually kept track because I was a masochist. Um, his first year, he was one years old. He was in daycare for the first time. The first winter, uh, or I should say the first like 10 months of his daycare, he brought home 14 viral illnesses. Was, yes 14 and that, that was in 10 months and i caught 10 of them <laughs> my wife caught five of them i think is the, was the numbers so yeah it was, it was it was misery it was that was just normal and we forgot about it when everybody started masking up <laughs> We <laughs> you know, forgot. that's that's winter
1: <laughs> and, and and i know that men can handle physical adversity as well as women this is a known fact but the the whole like man cold versus woman cold there's a in my household, there is a real distinct difference. Like, and that's not just me whining. Like, I get a cold, stuff is coming out of every hole <laughs> in my face that is just nasty and gnarly. It it there is ostensible, there is like proof. I have tangible evidence of things that my body's producing. My wife will get the same cold and she'll be like, ah, mm, ooh, this cold is bad. <laughs> One little cough. It's the worst. It makes me so
3: mad. See, the problem, Kaveh, is I know you and your wife, and have you considered the possibility she's just a healthier person than you are?
1: healthier, better, smarter, tougher (laughs) person. I'm taller, and that's essentially the only attribute I have.
3: (laughs) I don't even have that in my household.
1: (laughs) All right, buddy. Well, I'm so glad you're here to join me. I miss you, man. It's good to see you again. I'm glad you're back. Um, we could talk more about how we know each other and maybe we'll we'll catch up uh, soon but we do have our guest here uh neil downey and i hope i'm saying his name correctly i will check once we bring him on um really interesting story i'm really fascinated Mm. to delve into this medical background and a pilot um so i think there's no better person to to cover the topic we're gonna cover today with so everyone stay tuned we'll be right back have Captain, Doctor, Mr. Niall Downey. I said your name wrong in the introduction. I'm so sorry about that. Niall, thank you so much for joining, Raja and myself. It's nice to meet you. And you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Okay. Can we just start with the, the, the very basics? Because we live in America and we barely understand our own system here. So we have no concept of how the rest of the world works. You're uh, you trained in Dublin, and oh, over there, there's a bit of a difference between doctor and mister in terms of surgeons
4: and and uh, internal medicine, isn't there? Can you explain that to me? Yeah, I think it actually goes back to about the 19th century, Kavi. Uh, what happened if you know the, back in the medical history, uh, back before anesthetics uh, started, uh, phys- doctors were physicians. And surgeons were generally actually barbers. And uh, because there was no anesthetics, most surgery was fairly fairly rough and fairly crude. Uh, was sort of mainly things like amputations. and Basically, a good surgeon was a fast surgeon because you had no anesthetic to protect it. And the stuff they did was very basic. So uh, that's where the barber's pole comes from. Uh, barbers, as well as cutting hair, used to do surgery. Mm. Uh, they didn't have any understanding of sepsis back then either. So they would just use the same bandages and wash them out and use them again. Oh. So when they were drying them, they used to wrap them around a pole outside their shop, which is where the red and white barber's pole comes from, from the blood on the bandages. So eventually, when anesthetics kicked in and surgery became a bit more uh, sort of upmarket and became a bit more technical, uh, the physicians uh, still looked down their nose at surgeons and said, well, you're not really proper physicians, you're only barber surgeons. And I think the surgeons basically said, that's fine, then we'll not even take the title. So now in the UK and Ireland, uh, when you pass your Fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons exam, so your FRCS or FRCSI, as I have from Dublin, uh, once you get that, uh, you drop your doctor title and revert to being Mister or Miss. So it was, I think it's basically about a bit of medical snobbery, really, that's been going on for the past two hundred years. That is, I love the pettiness there. I, I, it's a little <laughs> punk rock, and
1: I love it. They're, oh yeah, you don't want to call us doctor? <laughs> Fuck you. We're Mister. <laughs> That's, <laughs> that's that's the gist of it i think that's fantastic <laughs> and and man i'm just gonna get this out of the way now but mm. i gotta tell you man i love the accent i love that are you from where are you, are you from dublin no i'm from Derry and northern ireland northern ireland very good okay god i love the irish people man i gotta <laughs> tell you when i travel through I, this, this is an aside has nothing to do with the show but i have to say <laughs> I travel. We were traveling through Europe, my wife and I. And we went through a couple of different places. We had very low expectations for the food and the in in Ireland. We were blown away with how great it was. All fresh, farm to table, just delicious. The people were amazing. The sights were beautiful. Trinity College, where you train,
4: gorgeous place. Really, just an amazing, amazing place, Dublin. Oh, Ireland generally is well worth a visit. Uh, my hometown of Derry. I uh, don't know if you watch Netflix at all. There's a TV series which has been fairly big on Netflix the last couple of years now. You talk, call it Derry Girls. Derry Girls. So that's uh, be, that's set in my hometown about the decade after I was at school. And uh, it's some of it's pretty accurate. And uh, I know the final episode uh, sort of linked around the, the Good Friday Agreement and stuff, which is approaching its 25th anniversary now in the next few weeks. Uh, it was very poignant. I and you it. probably know Game of Thrones as well. Uh, Game of Thrones was, was filmed, uh, lo- quite a lot of it, in Northern Ireland. And yeah. When I was based in Belfast, I actually used to fly a lot of the actors in and out because uh, the, the studios were about a mile from the airport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, that's lovely. What a beautiful place. What a beautiful
1: place. Okay. Well, you gonna have to come and visit Northern Ireland, sure. I will. That's all, it is definitely on my to-do list. Um. All right, we could talk about that all night, but that's... <laughs> That's not right right no, no, no. We, got, we have. I have a lot of things to talk to you about. We have. We have a lot to talk about.
3: So yeah. So now, I, I mean, I was. I watched your TED talk. I, I've been reading your bio, and this is fascinating. So, so you mentioned the doctor, the Mister, but, but I, I'll tell you in my preface. I work for the VA. I should say nothing. I'm going to say tonight represents my employer or the federal government of the United States. But we have adopted so many things from the airline industry already. Crew, crew resource management is a common thing, both at Department of Defense and the VA, et cetera. We have a lot to learn, in my personal opinion, from how pilots of the airline industry have approached safety. So tell us a little bit more about your story. So you, so you were a doctor, you were a mister. How did you end up as a pilot? And then how did you end up back working in healthcare systems?
4: Uh, well, basically, Roger, because of the, the way the training system was structured in the UK and Ireland back in the 90s, uh, they set it up that uh, when you qualified first, uh, you went on and then sub-specialized. But to actually become uh, a, a consultant in Ireland or, or the UK or an attending on your side of the, of the Atlantic, uh, to do that, you had to get onto a specialized training program. And the simple message was it was like musical chairs. There wasn't enough seats to go around. So a certain number of people were always going to fall between the stools. And fortunately, I, I fell between the stools. Now, I'd, I'd also tried the UK, uh, the States. I was shortlisted in Mass General. So I made the, the final shortlist there, but didn't make the cut. Uh, tried Australia. Uh, I'd been in the, the cardiac surge unit in Belfast and was now down in the unit in Dublin. So basically, there weren't enough uh, posts to go around. Uh, I wasn't one of the lucky ones who got one. Uh, that, you were then left uh, sort of in a blind alley that you'd now spent quite a few years specializing and what you wanted to do, but now you'd run out of road and you'd know where to go. Uh, The following Sunday, Erlingus had a half-page ad in one of our National Sunday newspapers here, and I literally just saw the ad and thought, right, let's go. If the ad had been in the previous Sunday, I wouldn't have read it. (laughs) Wait, you just became a pilot because you saw it in an ad? No, basically, I needed a career. I mean, uh, you know yourselves as doctors, we're fairly driven, uh, we're fairly ambitious. Uh, I, I now realize that after 12 years of training, uh, I was now in a blind alley that uh, there, there just wasn't enough jobs to go around with the best will in the world, uh, that I wasn't going to make any further progress. Uh, cardiac surgery was what I, what I wanted to do. I would spent about three years in it by that stage. Yeah. And basically I was now in a dead end where I had nowhere left to go. Uh, I could have kept doing sort of agency work and six-month contracts and locums and stuff like that, but like that's not why, how you want to spend the next 30 years of your career. Yeah. Uh, so I now needed something that would offer me a career. And the following Sunday, just by pure luck, uh, there was an ad in the sunday paper uh, that was advertising for airline pilots it was a cadet program that airling has had at that stage where they would the they opened applications there was about four and a half thousand of us applied and i was one of the 38 that got in uh, back in 1999 and i even went to the interviews and like they asked you know, did you always want to be a pilot and i thought no i can't go in and say i always wanted to be a pilot but accidentally became a heart surgeon like you can't justify that so i just said basically i i need a career uh, this this career has run out of road for me. Uh, I've only I'm about to turn thirty. Uh, I think I can learn how to fly an airplane. Give me a chance. And in fairness, they did.
1: <laughs> it so that's pretty amazing,
4: man. That's that's pretty they awesome. Actually took, they actually took on two surgeons in that batch of thirty-eight. The the other one was an orthopedic surgeon, and we're both still flying. You, wow. You,
1: you think it helped? Do you think that being a doctor, they're like, well, he survived that, he can do this.
4: Well, I think they realized that uh, when I spoke to the guys that interviewed me afterwards, they said that uh, they knew I was capable of getting through the training program. They said that most of the interview was based around deciding was I going to stay because uh, they just didn't get the concept that I could have spent 12 years of training and now be in a, in a dead end. Uh, yeah. In the aviation world, like they don't invest that amount of time and money into you and then let you end up in the dead end. That just doesn't make any sense to them. Yeah. So I spent most of the hour trying to convince them of that that's actually the reality of what I was facing. And uh, they they spent most of the interview time to work out were they going to waste hundred and thirty thousand uh, pounds training me up.
0: Yeah.
4: No I, thought, I pointed I, out well, a lot of the, a lot of the skills we learn in aviation are or in, in healthcare rather, uh, are very useful in aviation. Like, you know, we're we used to working hard, we're used to working under pressure, we're used to making decisions that are, are sort of critical life and death and so on. And I sort of explained to them like a lot of a lot of what I've done in the past I can transfer over. I actually didn't realize that I was actually going to learn an awful lot in aviation that I could transfer back into healthcare, which is where I ended up then when I set up Framework Health back in 2011.
3: Oh, no, that's, I think that's a great segue, I think, Niall. So, so I think, you know, for those of us who work in, in safety and quality, the idea of crew resource management or just the general uh, kind of precepts are common. But let's just talk for our listeners. Tell us what it was like the culture of safety when you're in medicine and now you're in the airline industry, what was it like? What was the difference, and how did that lead you back to medicine?
4: Uh, well, I, I went in the aviation nearly a quarter of a century ago now, and uh, compared to healthcare, uh, the difference in the whole concept of safety, which is black and white, uh, in healthcare, uh, basically it was if you made a mistake, you didn't work hard enough, uh, don't make it again and work harder next time. Uh, the, the, the whole culture was, was, especially in cardiac surgery, obviously, surgery generally tends to be quite macho. Uh, errors and mistakes uh, weren't sort of looked, looked on favorably, obviously. Uh, when I went to aviation, uh, the, the, the whole concept sort of went over my head at the start because I think I just didn't understand it. But then as I gradually settled into it, I realized that the basic message is that errors nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, we assume oh. in aviation that we're going to make mistakes. And the whole system is then structured around how we actually deal with the mistake. Uh, we look for, we're talking about crew resource management. That's actually quite a, a small part of our overall safety management system. I think that's the bit that was fed to, to healthcare about 10 years ago. And in my opinion, it was it was fed badly. That uh, it was generally brought in by pilots who thought they were speaking to pilots and they weren't. Uh, doctors mm-hmm. and nurses are a, a very different industry. Uh, you work under very different circumstances. You haven't got the luxuries that we have in aviation. Now, there is a huge amount of, of So, <laughs> uh, My my view is that there's an awful lot of compatibility in the underlying DNA between the two industries, and that if we can manage to get the aviation people and healthcare staff to work together, we can genetically engineer this into healthcare. I think we can make a huge difference uh, to the, the adverse event rates uh, that happens in uh, medicine worldwide.
1: Well, I'm sorry, let, let me take a step back for a second. Can you guys explain what crew resource management is for those of us? that don't use that term, uh, it, what, what is that? does that mean? You're literally, like how you have resources, human resources, like your 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 team that you're working with? What does it mean?
4: It goes back basically to the Tenerife disaster in 1977, uh, when two jumbos collided on the runway in Tenerife in fog and killed just under 600 people in one go. Uh, so aviation at that stage realized, I know that the amount of aviation was increasing and the amount of accidents was increasing. And I gave the aviation the Tenerife was like a wake-up call. I thought, no, we can't keep doing this. Uh, people aren't going to stop flying. So the, they brought NASA on board. Uh, they brought the various airlines on board. And like they had a conference the following year to decide, that, what are we going to do about this? And they realized that most of it was coming down to uh, basic human error. And so they we brought in, I think at that stage, it was called cockpit resource management because they assumed it was just to do with the pilots. And after a couple of years, they realized, no, this is actually much wider than that. Uh, error happens like, across the board. It's not just the pilots that are involved. So then it was w- widened out to crew resource management. So it's basically the underlying operating philosophy that aviation uses. But to widen the whole thing out, to put it in context first, uh, the, the first thing we have in aviation is the thing called a just culture. So that means when we make a mistake, we can put our hands up and we know that we're perfectly safe, that we can't be disciplined and we can't be dismissed as long as it was a genuine error. Now, it doesn't cover gross negligence, and it doesn't cover deliberate harm or malicious harm. Uh, in healthcare, when I was there, I think it's improved a bit. But when I was there, it was name, blame, shame, and retrain. So once we put our hand up, we we're now aware that there's uh, an error. In aviation, we then look for what went wrong. So we work on a basis well, you've been flying for 20 years, and you haven't made this mistake before. So what was different today? What happened in the system that tripped you up today? And we dig into the system and find it was there a wire and we try and engineer it back out, and if possible, replace it with a safety net. Whereas in healthcare, I find generally, it tends to be uh, whoever was the last person to touched the ball uh, gets blamed for it. Uh, so it's who went wrong, whereas in aviation, we focus on what went wrong. And then CRM fits in then as the, the third so leg of the stool, basically. It's our under, underlying operating philosophy that we use. So it's, the, the simplest definition is the optimum use uh, of all available resources. Now, it can be crew. Like say, as a captain. Uh, I've got my co-pilot beside me, who's a very useful resource. I've got eight cabin crew behind me who have been flying maybe 20, 30 years as well. Uh, we've got over 300 passengers. Uh, like us say, when I'm flying tomorrow, I'm flying back to Dublin tomorrow night. Uh, I can't see the engines when I plane. They're not in my line of vision from where I sit in the cockpit. So passengers can look out the window and see oil dripping out of the engine. And then they can tell the cabin crew and let me know. So we see the, the passengers as part of the crew. And widening right beyond that again, uh, obviously we're speaking to air traffic control. We can ask them for information and for help. Uh, if I need to contact our, our operations back in Dublin, we've got a satellite telephone on board, so I can actually lift the telephone and li- literally ring the chief pilot on his mobile phone and speak to him directly from the cockpit, halfway across the Atlantic. So it's a very wide concept of crew.
1: So let me let me ask you. I'm hearing two things that it seems the airplane airline industry um, is doing better or at least something that we can learn from them in, in medicine one that there is a culture of blame in medicine and, and you know I, I, there there certainly is although you know we do have our m&m conferences morbidity mortality conferences and in good places and in good institutions they do encourage people to be open and honest about things without you know fear of uh repercussion because that's how you learn and they, they do encourage that but you're right i, I think that's still there for sure people are still worried about sharing what, what went wrong if, if something did. But then the other thing I'm hearing is that it sounds like there's more of like a flat hierarchy in the airline industry. Like if you're, for example, in the operating room, um, it's very unlikely, say, a medical student, and this happens sometimes, but it usually doesn't. If a medical student, sp- student who's sort of at the bottom of the rung notices something funny they're less likely to say it to the attending who's at the top of that food chain whereas it sounds like you think in in the airline industry it's a little bit more accessible to reach the person who is at the top of that that pyramid is that am i hearing that correctly
4: yeah you're buying on uh, it's not actually a flat hierarchy though because there's still <coughs> somebody in charge uh, someone still has to be the boss and take control but it's a very shallow hierarchy Whereas in healthcare, I think it tends to be quite a steep hierarchy. So our idea is that like we still have a chain of command. So if, if one of the cabin crew notices something unusual, they generally speak to the person above them who feeds it then to the cabin manager who's in charge of the cabin crew, who will then feed it into the cockpit to me. Uh, but the system's designed that, say, if we're taxiing out and we're about to go onto the runway to take off, if it's like time critical and one of the cabin crew members is like worried that there's something going wrong that will affect the safety of the flight. The most junior cabin crew member can bypass everybody and come straight to me and call me on our intercom system uh, in the cockpit straight away. Now, generally, there is a chain of command, but if necessary, they can bypass that and come to me directly. And before the flight starts, we try to make an effort if the boarding hasn't started to actually sort of to uh, so walk down the cabin and meet all the crew because we find that if you have actually met, if there's someone you've seen your, your own uh, walk of life, if you've actually met someone, spoken to them before, you're more likely to speak up again than you are to speak up to a complete stranger. So we find then that if you've actually had a really, like, made some sort of connection uh, with someone, uh, if they do find that there's something they're worried about, they will bring it to you. It might turn out that it's not significant at all, but uh, we encourage them to bring anything they're worried about, and then we can deal with it as a team. But no, it's a, it's not a totally flat hierarchy, but it's an awful lot flatter uh, than it is in healthcare.
3: Yeah, so I, I kind of want to ask you, Niall, about this journey in aviation so in my you know i have i have a bunch of pilot friends and we've kind of talked about where pilot culture was say in the 50s 60s 70s and 80s you had a lot of say former at least in the the states Mm. a lot of former world war ii pilots vietnam war pilots and they brought this um hierarchical viewpoint that was Mm. you know the pilot the pilot is is the captain is the god and Don't interrupt him. And then, like you said, after the Tenor Reef disaster, there were other disasters in the 70s. There was United Airlines Flight 173. There was a bunch of things, right? Um, So now you came in the late 90s. You've been in, in that industry for 25 years. Tell me about kind of what has it been like to see that culture take shape inside the airline industry where, you know, the captain is not a god. Everyone should have a say. And by the way, the captain has to listen or should listen for the safety of everybody. What is What has that journey been like that you've seen in, in, in the airline industry?
4: It's been very refreshing, Roger, to see that. Now, going back, it wasn't just in the States. That uh, that was the situation back in the 70s uh, in the UK. Uh, not so much Ireland, but in the UK, obviously, there was a lot of ex-RAF pilots who were involved in the Second World War as well, who then went into commercial mm-hmm. aviation. Now, you guys who were used to flying, I mean, they'd, they'd been flying sort of in the Second World War, maybe in their, their teens or 20s when they were very young. They were fly for single engine airplane or single pilot operations. Uh, they had no co-pilots, they had no crew to deal with, uh, they had no experience of that. And then when they joined commercial airlines, I think they basically thought that they were just in a bigger version of their previous plane. And like they weren't good at interacting with crew, which again just human nature. That's 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 how they were trained. That's what that's what they were used to doing. Uh in, in aviation, like the, we tried these sort of change that now that's why it's taken a generation to so get to the stage. I mean, we're at this about 45 years now. It took about a generation. Now, even when I started, uh, there were still people that were like, closer to that sort of mindset than there are now. Uh, they all gradually uh, retired, so uh, we managed to transform a lot of people. A lot of other people uh, didn't get transformed, but they eventually sort of retired out. Now you've got guys like myself, who are some of the older captains, and like we know nothing but like the, the new modern system of like crew resource management type approaches and philosophy. So, uh, I mean, the same in healthcare. It's going to take a generation to change things. Now, there has there has definitely been a start made. There has been progress. Uh, but like personally, I, I think you're sort of a generation behind where we are in aviation. But it's been great to see that you know, in aviation, it took a long time. It didn't happen overnight. And it's, it's still progressing. I mean, we're still not there either. Uh, we're still making mistakes. Uh, we still have people that that think they're God, basically. But I think there's, there's an awful lot less of them now, and uh, they're gradually being replaced by people who uh, sort of can see the benefits of the the, the 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 new system of like the crew resource management type of generation, if you want to call them that. And I think healthcare is starting to change. There's some pockets of fantastic work going on, uh, both in Ireland and the UK and across the world and in the States. Uh, there's people pushing the idea, like, say, Peter Pronovost and Atul Gawanda on your side of the Atlantic. Uh, we've got people on this side, like uh, Peter Brennan in the UK. Uh, Martin Bromley is uh, an airline pilot whose wife was killed in an adverse event, and he set up uh, the Clinical Human Factors Group over here in, in the UK. Uh, he's been doing fantastic work for the, the last 15 or so years now. So, I mean, there's there's definitely been a sea change, but it's what I've been trying to do is try and transfer the same change we've seen in aviation and apply it to healthcare. So that's what I have spent the last 12 years
1: uh, trying to achieve. Uh, you're the perfect person in a lot of ways to, to cross that gap. Um, Because I mean, we can definitely debate how much uh, medical error there is in the United States, but I think we would all agree um, if you believe in those, that 2016 BMJ article that came out talking about medical causes being the the third uh, article, or if you, I, like myself, think, you know, if you carefully dissect that out and you look at the meta-analysis that came out of Yale in 2020 that shows it wasn't the case, that's much lower. Either way, if it's 1%, it's still too much. And, and I think it's a lower number than it was initially presented as, but either way, one preventable death is too much. And we should always be working for systems to try and to, to, to fix that. And I think if you can bring those ideas from other places that have been shown to work. And it sounds like it's been shown to work in the airline industry, right? It sounds like CRM or crew resource management hasn't proven to work. If if we can bring in new ideas that can it help, I think that's great. And I think it's really wonderful that you're doing that.
4: Well, if you look, uh, we're trying to say that, has it worked in aviation? If you look at the numbers, again, like the turning point for us was the Tenerife disaster in 1977. At that stage, the, the average number of deaths uh, worldwide in commercial jet aviation was about 3,000. Now, since 1977, the amount of aviation has increased about 15 fold. Uh, we're now carrying, back then, they were carrying about 250 million passengers a year worldwide, or it's passenger movements, as known as, because the, the same passenger might travel five or 10 times a year. So we talk about passenger movements. Uh, it's gone from about 250 million in the 70s to about 4 billion And now, well, cer- certainly before COVID. Uh, we are recovered uh, fairly close back to where we started, I think, now. There's been about a 15-fold increase in the amount of aviation since 1977. So with 3,000 deaths per year then, if we followed that trajectory, we should be expecting maybe forty-five to 50,000 deaths per year in the, globally in aviation. Uh, at the minute now, the, the number of deaths in commercial jet aviation annually is generally less than 1,000 a year. I mean, back in 2017, there actually wasn't a single death worldwide in commercial jet aviation. So if you look at the numbers there, if we, we should be expecting forty-five to 50,000 deaths per year now. We're averaging about 1,000. So that's about a 98% improvement. So as they say, what we're doing is not perfect, but it's, it's made a, a big change. And I think the similar sort of system in healthcare, uh, as you say, there's arguments over what the exact numbers are. Uh, everyone's agreed that whatever the numbers are, they're absolutely horrendous. They're absolutely massive. And most of the research as well shows that aviation type stuff Uh, Can catch about 70% of those errors. So, even if it is smaller than the 300,000 that Marty McCarty found, uh, again, though, there are studies actually going back about 50 years, and the general consensus are the number of adverse events is about 10% of uh, the number of hospital admissions. And most of the studies show that around about in around 5% of those uh, can cause or contribute to the patient's death. So, there's been arguments over There's There's actually been more discussion over Marty McCarty's numbers than there has been out of, what can we actually do about this? Which I think is uh, well, a big feeling.
1: I, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I do think it's important. You look at that Rodwin meta-analysis I'd mentioned, and it shows that the number of preventable deaths was probably around 22,000 per year, which is not even like the top 10. But it doesn't matter to me. I agree, it's still too high. <laughs> but the reason I do think it is important to try and bear down on those numbers and give realistic numbers. It's because I, at least here in the States, and I don't know how it is in overseas, but I feel like that sort of, when when people use that information, they use it in grifts. They use it to sell some other product. They use mm-hmm. it in a pseudoscience way. They, it, it's used in this, not, hey, we need to fix the system. It's used as, you can't trust the system. Trust me instead. Trust what I have to sell you instead. It's not used to say, okay, well, what systems can we change to to change how we avoid incidents? It's, it's used in in an inappropriate way. So for me, that it is an important point. But I think the thing we agree on, all three of us, very clearly, is that any amount of deaths that we can avoid through better systems, we should do everything we can to, to, to
3: follow. So I have some observations and I kinda of, I'm gonna to lead to a question and Nile, and mm-hmm. I know you've spent time on both sides of the Atlantic and um and I kinda of wanna get your thoughts on, on culture in general. But so so some observations already. I think you hit some really important points right up front, which is the assumption that humans will make errors. This is not an unexpected thing. This is actually how we function as people. This is, and this is, let's just start with as a baseline, which as you said, is not always in every culture. Um, You also mentioned that it's probably gonna take a generation or so. And I I totally concur. So full disclosure, I helped start a uh, one year fellowship in quality improvement patient safety at my hospital, 2014. Um, And I'm lucky, I work in a system at the VA where we have a large system that is actually focused on quality and patient safety. They've funded 90 of these positions around the country now. And I've seen medical students and residents in the last 10 years who come in with a little different mindset about this than, say, people from 20, 30 years ago. And it's great. but, And and this is the the thing I want to kind of bring out there's so it's so hard in the United States to change the culture of safety at many hospitals for a few reasons and the first thing we got to talk about is malpractice so people are, people sections systems organizations hospitals are inherently afraid to actually admit that something went wrong to actually admit that and, and it doesn't have to be someone, like you said, it could be something, it could be a process, it could be a transition from this hospital to that hospital, there's so many different things that could happen. S- culture is so hard to change because they're constantly afraid, we're going to get sued, we're going to get sued. And and it's very hard to change that to say, well, we're going to be a blame-free culture. And it's you could tell employees that, but they don't believe it because they live in a society where they watch people get sued and they watch people have multi-million dollar judgments against them, whether it's justified or not. And I think it has permeated also our larger culture. I think even if you talk to Americans and patients about how do they think about healthcare, there was a survey actually out of the Commonwealth Fund um, some time ago, and they asked, self-reported, they asked patients, do you think that you've been the victim of a mistake or a medical error in the last two years? And by far, the number one country that had the highest percentage response was the United States. 34% of people thought they'd been the victim of a medical error. Now, that may or may not be true. but What's interesting to me is that it was so different in the United States compared to every other country that was surveyed, including the UK, by the way. Um, so it tells you that that's not just an inside the hospital culture. There's a societal culture, right, of blame, of who made the mistake. That's the guy. That's who we're going to, and, and then it leads to everything else, right? The lawsuits and the money, everything else. What are your thoughts on kind of culture in society and culture in the hospital? And what what do you think about how to actually have a, a safety culture? And you've been on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, give us some give us some thoughts on what how to do that. I think you.
4: you're completely right, Roger. Uh, we do live in a, a blame society because I mentioned in my TED talk, uh, if, we, if we hope to make progress, uh, as well as uh, doctors accepting that they make mistakes and putting their hand up, the public have to join in as well. They're part of the crew. As I said, like, we see a crew resource management as being a very broad concept. Patients and families are part of the crew, uh, that they'll have to accept the fact that they're they're being managed by human beings. And especially since COVID, uh, they've been managed by uh, a lot less human beings because a lot of them disappeared from the system and haven't come back. Uh, most units, I know on, on my side of the Atlantic, I'm sure yours is the same, uh, they've a lot less staff available than they may have had uh like five years ago even, but they're trying to carry a, a bigger workload. So, of course, mistakes are going to happen. And I think the public have to, to join in and be part of the team and accept, well, yeah, mistakes do happen. It doesn't mean that the doctor is not a good doctor or the nurse isn't a good nurse. It uh, it shows that they're human beings working in a suboptimal system, which isn't going to change anytime in the near future. So we all need to accept that mistakes will happen and uh, we can't, Uh, have the the heads will roll uh, mentality all the time. Because if we do, we'll end up, there'll be no heads left and then there will be no health service. So I think that uh, we all need to invest in the idea that mistakes are, as you say, just part of human nature. Uh, If you even look at evolution, evolution is designed uh, that errors are sort of built into the evolutionary system. Uh, Your brain is about about 3% of your body weight, but usually about 25% of the energy. Uh, the brain's designed to take shortcuts and heuristics They try and uh, get the best value for money out of the energy available. Uh, part of the downside of that, the, the upside is it's extremely efficient. The downside is that it, it causes errors. And unfortunately, now in the 21st century in our uh, society, and especially in healthcare, the margins are so tight that those errors now uh, tip the balance between life and death. But we do need to accept that that error is completely normal. Now, you say the hospitals are terrified they put their hand up. There's actually been a few studies done. I think Johns Hopkins and Mass General have both tried it, uh, that when they made a mistake, they have a a policy of open disclosure where they would tell the patient, sorry, hands up, we made the mistake. Here's what happened. Here's what we've done about it. And here's what we've done to try and stop it happening again. And a lot of the research that's done out there shows that patients actually don't want to go to court. It's a very long, uh, drawn-out, tedious process, uh, which is very long-winded and very, very difficult to get through. Now, I've got friends who are lawyers over here, and uh, they, they find it very difficult to work through as well. And-
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
4: Uh, they've now started looking at mediation instead. So a lot of places that have actually sort of brought in a system of holding their hands up have actually found that they've, it's actually reduced the number of lawsuits and reduced the payouts. Because a lot of a lot of patients, I mean, patients don't go to a hospital uh, to attack doctors and nurses, and doctors and nurses don't go to work to do a bad day's work. Everyone's trying their best here. And I think when people put their hands up and acknowledge, yes, we made a genuine mistake, uh, the research has shown that most patients accept that and uh, the might of litigation actually reduces
1: they haven't shown there's that many things that can decrease your likelihood of a lawsuit other than your relationship with the patient and how they look at you and how they like you and a big part of that is if the they feel that the doctor has been upfront with them
4: yeah um, if they can trust you
1: yeah exactly if they feel like they, the the doctor has been transparent with them i think there's there's not that much else that really shows that um, Roger. Is that is that what you're thinking? Are you thinking that it's just our our culture, our we maybe have a more litigious culture uh, that makes it more difficult to have that kind of, for good or bad, honesty or openness or transparency? Is, do you think that changes it here?
3: I think the litigiousness is the gasoline. I think, you know, I don't think it's it's the fact that we lost it. I think it pours gas on it. I think Niall just pointed out a huge thing. He pointed out two huge things. Number one, imagine if every physician and nurse could hear from a patient's mouth, I understand you're human and everyone makes mistakes. If you knew that before you went to every patient encounter, how would that change your willingness to raise your hand and say, I think something went wrong. And the flip side, which Nyloss also pointed out, which says he's 100% right. There have been multiple studies that have shown on the other side when a doctor, an organization, a hospital, whatever, makes a mistake and actually flips the script and says, we're going to do full disclosure and we're going to actually go to that patient and say, I'm sorry. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah. We know we messed up. This is, how, this is what we're going to learn from it. This is how we're going to change things and this is how we're going to make sure that someone else does not suffer what your loved one did. Those two aspects of this are so powerful. And I think those are the things that we need to really think about as people, right? As patients, as providers, as anyone, is that the both sides, personally, the other side's human. You know what I mean? And I think that that we forget that here sometimes in our, like you said, our culture is driven by other um, emotions and money and mm-hmm. lawsuits and everything else, right?
1: Um all, all right. I this is great, but I have so many things that we need to cover in a short period of time. I need I want to move on to some new topics. I mean, that alone is such a good topic, Raja. I think it it, it deserves a whole episode, but we, we do have some um questions still to get through, and then some listener questions people have for you as well, Nile. One I have in this process that you went through. As you are going through training to become a pilot, and you're flying your first jet with people in it, and maybe even after that, something we talk about in medicine a lot is people have imposter syndrome for years and years. People can still have imposter syndrome even when they have gray hair, like Roger does, filling that beautiful beard. Do you, was it the same for you in in uh, being a pilot? Did you did? At what point, if at all? Did you lose it, and or are there still times when you're flying a plane and you're like, "Wow, I'm in the air in a big metal tube carrying hundreds of people, <laughs> miles into the sky"? What what is go? What am I doing? Do you still have imposter syndrome? If, if not, when did you lose it?
4: Uh, I think maybe I'm too arrogant to have imposter syndrome. Uh, the way we're trained is that uh, before we we get to fly three hundred passengers, we started a little single engine planes uh, like little Cessnas. Uh, I trained in uh, a school in England, in Oxford, but uh, we did uh, quite a bit of the actual flying training in the States. So we were in Phoenix, Arizona, and in Mesa. So you train first like to sort of learn how to fly in a small plane. Uh, when we come back then, once we're qualified, uh, we were doing uh, our simulation training. So we train in a simulator. Uh, where we actually qualify to fly the plane in the simulator. And then the first time you fly it uh, in the real world, you're flying it with a training captain. You do a certain number of flights in with the training captain before they sign you off. So before you think you're actually released into the wild, uh, you've, I think your imposter syndrome has been beaten out of you by that stage because we don't want imposters up there. We want people who are comfortable and feel that, no, I do belong here. I'm entitled to be flying this airplane. So I'm not sure if there really is an imposter syndrome thing. I mean, Obviously, it's it's a, a great privilege to be able to do uh, what I'm doing. Uh, it's, it's great to be able to sort of take a, a $250 million jet and fly it across the Atlantic. But I think we're sort of trained that we don't want imposters up there. We want people who are comfortable and happy with the responsibility that goes with that. Now, you start off as a co-pilot. Uh, different companies have different timetables. Uh, and In my company, Arlingas, uh, it's uh, when I was coming through, it takes about 10 or 12 years before you get to the stage of being a captain and taking the full responsibility. So when you're a co-pilot, uh, you were taking responsibility, but the buck stop with the guy sitting on your left-hand side. Uh, either himself or herself had spent the years working through the system. So when you move across to the left seat, then you're now taking the, the final ultimate responsibility. But by the time you get there, you've been flying for maybe 10, 12 years.
1: And along those lines, can you talk to us a little bit about scary situations and how you manage them? Because I think that probably relates to a lot of people in medicine and beyond. Because um, I can't imagine there is uh much more extreme situations than the ones that a pilot and say a surgeon, uh, both of which you are, um,
4: are in. I think that we tend not to get scared very often because we don't let ourselves get to that point. Uh, we we're, we're we're chickens when it comes to that. Uh, we don't let ourselves get in the position of being scared. Uh, we try and anticipate what's going to scare us, and we go in a different direction. Uh like if say if we're coming into summer and there's a thunderstorm, like say I'm I'm in Orlando at the minute, uh Florida has quite a few thunderstorms. Uh if there's a thunderstorm right over the top of the airport, I would be very scared to fly through it. So I don't. I I have enough fuel with me that I hold. Uh if the, the storm's not passing through fast enough, uh, I'm not gonna scare myself by trying to land in it. I go somewhere else. I I divert over to Tampa or at the Fort Lauderdale, i go elsewhere. And I think about that before I leave Dublin at all. I make sure I have enough fuel to do that. So the the main sort of aspect of my job really is to uh, avoid situations where you're going to get scared. Uh, if you get to the point where you're scared, that means you've, you've missed the boat, basically. So uh, it doesn't really happen very often.
1: Well, that's good to hear. I feel like that's something we have in in common in medicine. We're all, as doctors, very risk-averse. You know, we, we try to avoid the situation. It's also why we're not like, you know, when it comes to like business or anything like that, we're not great at it because we tend to be, or maybe we are, I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing, but we tend to not, you know, like taking risks in general. Um, But that's good to hear. I have to tell you, because, you know, there's people like me who are, aren't totally comfortable flying. I'm not like a great flyer. I'm like, you know, that line from, uh what was the Wesley Snipes movie when he was in the plane, Passenger 51. Like anything that moves faster than me, I want to be in control of it. Like I, I, you can, you can tell me all the the statistics and I can understand the safety and how much more dangerous my driving is. And given how much I drive, I, it, I can certainly see that. But at the end of the day, it's this emotional thing. Like we, we want to see that the pilot is in control And I'll be honest with you, because I do a lot of procedures and I do a lot of procedures that scare people because there's some risk in some of the advanced procedures I do. Um, I kind of approach going in to talk to these patients and I approach the situation almost as if I'm pretending I'm a pilot on a plane and I'm saying the things and and saying it with the voice that I want to hear from my pilot. I like to present myself in that same way. So, you know, I, I, uh, I think we... In medicine can learn a lot about the way you guys communicate I think that in of itself the the mm-hmm. error of calm that you guys uh you know exude I think that's really important
4: So well, basically the as you say pe- people are frightened of flying uh I mean you say you're' we're, we tend to be risk averse uh we are risk averse but the, there are risks involved uh the the safest way of flying an airplane is never to push it back off the gate. Uh, we, we can't do that. They don't make money that way. So uh, we tend, we're risk averse, but uh, we're we're very careful about the way we manage risk. I mean, we have to take risks. Uh, like yesterday, when we took off out of Dublin, I've got a, a big aluminium tube with uh, 50,000 litres of, of petrol in it, basically, that I'm going to take uh, down a runway at 150 miles an hour and then fly at 500 miles an hour across Atlantic. There are risks involved in that. But before we do that, uh, we work out, I mean, the, the basic premise uh, in aviation And the same premise I'm trying to teach the healthcare for the last 12 years is basically, uh, where can this go wrong? And then secondly, what's plan B? So say yesterday, before we actually left the office, uh, even walked down to the airplane, we worked out, right? So how much fuel do we take? We actually took uh, uh, 61,000 litres of fuel yesterday. Uh, So we worked out, right? So that means we're going to be taking off at about 220 tonnes. Our maximum landing weight in an airwell safety 30 is about 178 tonnes. So if I catch fire when I take off from Dublin, what am I going to do?
0: Mm. So
4: you're, you're going to have to land overweight because you can't, uh, if you're on fire, you've got no option. Even though we're too mm. heavy to land, we're going to have to land. But then the next question is, that, well, how long is the runway in Dublin? Can I land 220 tons on the, land, on the runway in Dublin? So before we even left the office, I put the numbers into our computer system and worked out what's the landing distance I will need. What have I got in Dublin, given the weather conditions? Is it on me dry? Is it wet? Is it slippy? Is it snowing? Uh, And I work out, well, can I actually land in Dublin? Now, when I worked it out, yes, I can. Uh, If it turned out I was too heavy for Dublin, the next thing, well, Shannon's 30 minutes down the road. Can I land in Shannon? Uh, If I can't, uh, Belfast is about the only other option. If I work out that I'm too heavy to land anywhere, if I catch fire, well, sorry, I'm not leaving the office. We can't go. So, like, there are risks involved. Uh, But we tend to sort of project ahead and have an an option for every one of those risks. Say, before we entered, when we cross the Atlantic, uh, there's a North Atlantic track system. uh, The Nats that uh, all airplanes use when they're crossing the Atlantic uh, in either direction. Uh, We travel in corridors. So yesterday there was about six corridors and all traffic heading westbound across the Atlantic yesterday afternoon is in one of those six corridors. And we're all uh, stacked a thousand feet above each other. So if, if I lose, have an engine failure on the Atlantic, I'm not going to be able to maintain my altitude because I've only got one engine left. Now, I can still fly the, the, the plane perfectly well, but I can not fly to 38,000 feet. I haven't enough power for that. So we then work out, right, well, if I start losing height, there's another guy right below me and a guy below him and a guy below him. So before we ever we even entered the, the track system yesterday, we say, right, so if we lose an engine, here's how we're going to deal with it. Uh, we're going to turn off 40 degrees to the right we're going to get away from the other airplanes we're then going to parallel it five miles out because if we go too far you're going to hit the track system next to you so we can't do that either and then once i'm happy i'm between the two tracks i'm now going to drop down between it till i get out of the track system so we're constantly projecting ahead of like where are the risks what can happen what's the worst can happen this here, and how are we going to deal with it so at all times like you're saying about like, do we get frightened uh, i would be frightened if i didn't have a plan but uh, at all stages, we've worked out if this goes wrong, I've always got a plan.
1: Sounds like it's planning, training, preparation, and being able to sort of plan ahead as much as possible. That's that's excellent.
4: Well, the same things applicable in surgery. One of my a few of my friends obviously are, are still in surgery. Uh, like after COVID, uh, one of my friends in Belfast when he was coming back uh, from operating, they hadn't done any uh, like a lot of their major cases for uh, several months. So he took a concept that that I taught him from aviation that when he came back to work, starting doing the big cases, uh, he operated with another consultant instead of operating with a trainee mm-hmm. uh, until the two of them were happy that they were both back up to speed. So it's yeah. the exact same. I mean, it's the, the concepts with the we use in aviation, they're perfectly applicable to healthcare. And like that was one of the examples that he brought across and found it very useful. And after about 10 days, once he was happy, he was comfortable again, then the, the two guys separated and they just started operating with their trainees again as normal. I love that idea. I think in medicine...
1: When I think still, people like me who do procedures or surgeons who are doing surgeries Mm. should still shadow fully trained other people, other uh, you know doctors uh, as well. I think that you could Mm. still learn a lot from that. Um, I think it's good to see how other doctors are doing it, other attendings are doing. I think that's great. All right, Mm. a couple, couple more questions for you because I I, we have a lot over here. Um, Do you ever get bothered by turbulence?
4: Yeah, sure. Basically, turbulence is just bumpy air. Uh, I mean, we don't enjoy turbulence, but the, the planes are designed uh, to withstand that. And like we're, we we experience it all the time. So, I mean, we especially on transatlantic flights, uh, we get turbulence quite regularly. Uh, again, as I we was saying, by having a plan B, we tend to plan ahead. So before we leave the office at all, uh, we get weather charts uh, for like a, a time period for six hours before. Uh, the the flight, the time of the flight, about six hours after roughly, to cover the sort of time frame we're going to be using. Uh, we can see where the jet streams are on the Atlantic. Uh, we can see where the big temperature changes are, which is usually a sign of like, turbulent air. So we plan ahead and work out that, again, as I say, before we leave the office, we've got more sort of charts that we can, we can look into. Uh, we can work out that if we want a certain uh, margin uh, for, for the plane to withstand the turbulence, we can work out, well, given the weight we are at any given point, what's the highest level we can climb to? So, that the higher you go, the tighter your margins become. Uh, but the, the lower you go, the more fuel you burn. So, we, we have to have a compromise between. So, before we leave the office at all, we'd have decided, well, it's likely to bump, be bumpy in these points. So, this is the height we're going to fly at to accommodate that. And then, even with the cabin crew, uh, b- before we, we take off at all, we say to them, though, well, here's the points where it's likely to, bump, to be bumpy. And they can plan, then, their, their meal services and tea and coffee services around that as well, so that uh, people aren't exposed to sort of getting tea or coffee spilled on them. So basically, it's it's uncomfortable, but it's not that big a deal.
1: Yeah, that's always reassuring to hear.
3: All right, now I have to ask you. You know, I have three boys that are in the ten under crew. We have been following these balloon, flying octagon, whatever they are, that have been getting shot down the last couple of weeks. um We got to ask you about UFOs. All right, so <laughs> first,
1: I, I know I to, love this question. I love you. It. Got to tell
3: right, first. Please tell us if you've ever actually seen or experienced a UFO. And if not, just tell us your general thoughts on things that fly through the sky that people don't understand.
4: Uh, First of all, Noah, I've, I've never seen a UFO. Uh, I've never met any little green man or anything either. They've got but to that... him.
1: He's lying to us, Raja. They've got
4: <laughs> to him already.
1: Yeah,
3: the Yeah, he's been laughing. co-opted. He's been co-opted, I don't <laughs> believe it.
4: I'm part of the problem here. Yeah, well, Basically, the... the I think a lot of the the things that people see, like I actually saw an interesting video clip on Twitter there last week, and it was basically a flying object uh, which was going across the sky and then very abruptly did a 180-degree turn and went the other direction. And it looked very impressive. But when you actually saw it from a slightly different angle, it was one jet flying at a 90-degree angle across the contrail of another jet. And Mm -hmm. uh, because of the relative motion of the two of them, it looked as if uh, one of the objects had turned 180 degrees I say it was just an optical illusion. So I think when people see things, uh, they do genuinely believe what they saw. But uh, again, one of the things that we look out for in aviation and in healthcare both is like people see what they think they saw, or people see what they expect to see, not necessarily what's actually in front of them. So I think a lot of UFOs are just uh, another symptom of that. Again, we're back to human nature and just normal human error.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe any of this. I think Niall's lying. I think there's stuff up. No, I'm kidding.
1: I mean, phone <laughs> did conveniently cut out when he was about to tell us. And That's then he right. He was going to tell on. us the
3: truth. And the and Wi-Fi cut out. Got to him. <laughs> <laughs> so any thoughts on these, uh, these flying objects that have been getting shot down over the United States the last week or two? No, I've, I've no more information
4: on that than, than you guys have, but I mean, I don't know, are, are they a new phenomenon? Have they been there all the time and just nobody's been paying attention to them or are they suddenly now just uh, sort of politically more important? I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It is, is interesting that it's coming up so frequently these days. I don't remember hearing that much about it, but it doesn't mean it hasn't been happening, but it just Mm -hmm. means now we're hearing about it. Um, Okay, let's get to listener questions because there are a lot of, a lot of them and, and some of them are quite good. So um, they cover subjects that I, I really wanted to talk about anyways. Uh, here's the first one from Steve Jafford, MD Sample, friend of the podcast, at Superman Sings on Twitter. Are passengers really getting more disruptive or is it just because everyone is videoing all the time now? I think this is a great question because I feel like in the last couple of years because of COVID, there are a lot of people out there whose mask of sanity has slowly slipped off of them. And what what little like social mannerisms they were able to like control, they no longer can. So it feels like in medicine, you talk to doctors, doctors are confronted with angrier patients than ever. You talk to like waitresses and waiters and people in the service industry, it feels like the same. Is it the
4: case in, in airlines or are we just seeing it more uh, because it, it's clickbait? Yeah, I I don't think the amount of disruption has increased, but I think you're right that the the visibility of it certainly has because everybody on board now has a phone and everybody's videoing stuff and posting stuff constantly. So I think we're seeing an awful lot more of it, but I think it might have been just we're seeing what was always there in the first place.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, here's one from Tyler Black, MD, another friend of the podcast at Tyler Black 32. What's a myth about being a pilot that everyone seems to know slash ask about that just is not true?
4: Um, I think one of the ones is that uh, we we only work uh, about five or six hours a day. Uh, My family all seem to think I go on holidays uh, every time I go to work. (laughs) That's definitely a myth. (laughs) Uh, I think that would be the most common one, probably. Yeah,
1: that sounds about right. All right, here's a multi-parter from Dhruv Bhagavan. uh, Drew Bhagavan, he writes multi-parters. This is his thing. You don't need to, we'll just go through a couple of them. Okay, sure. He does this just to torture me. We're just gonna, I'm gonna ask you um, the first two. Uh, One, work slash duty hour and rest restrictions. Um, That's interesting too, and how it parallels the medicine. And two, how is responsibility divided between pilot and co-pilot? I think that's uh, the most interesting part to me.
4: Sure. Well, to take the hours, first of all, uh, we're, we're restricted in the number of hours we do. And I say When I arrived at work yesterday, uh we're in the office first. We're going through all the paperwork. We're looking at weather. We're working out the things I was talking about, like uh, what weight we are, uh, what height we can fly at, how much fuel we're going to need, what happens in an emergency. Uh, we then go out to the plane and program a lot of stuff in. So I'm basically at work maybe two hours uh, before we actually push back off the gate at all. Uh, they're duty hours. Uh, once we actually push back off the gate, then that's flight hours. So there's uh, limits on both. Uh, We have a limits on both cases, like say, uh, when there's two pilots, which we generally have uh, our maximum limit in a day. Uh, It varies according to the time of day and so on, what time we're up at. Uh, But generally our maximum would be around about a 14 hour day. Uh, That would be our our duty time. Uh, We've got a daily limit, a weekly limit, a monthly limit, and an annual limit. So we have to be inside all of them at all times. And the, the idea then thats that, is that we're, we've got a chance uh, to recover and not be fatigued all the time. Now, to compare that to healthcare, uh, you know, when I worked in the National Cardiac Surgery Unit in Dublin, uh, once we were on a one in four on call. So during the week, that meant you did a 36 hour unbroken shift. Uh, when it was your one weekend a month, that meant about a 56 or a 58 hour unbroken shift. And I find it hard to believe that anyone thinks that that's safe. I mean, it's physically impossible to work those sort of hours and still be sort of cognitively tuned in or even have the sort of hand eye coordination at that stage. So that covers the the duty hours and uh, the sort of flight hours. Maximum flight hours actually in the UK, I think it's the same in the States, is 900 hours uh, over uh, the It's 12 month period. Again, different people count the 12 months in different ways. Some people count from the 1st of January, some people count on a rolling 12 month basis. But uh, it averages out that you still end up doing maybe a 40, 45-hour week when you total it all up. Yeah. Uh, so that's from the Irish point of view. Uh, second question. Um, so remind me of what it was again, sir. What's the, what are the uh, responsibilities? How are they? Oh, they are they the responsibilities pilot and co-pilot? Basically, we've got uh, all, all planes, uh, all commercial jets, are generally two pilot operations. So the, the two pilots are essentially the same, but uh, one has to be the commander. Uh, so say there's times if, if we're short of co-pilots, we're going to have two captains flying together. So captains are qualified. They fly from either seat. Uh, the, the co-pilot can only fly from the co-pilot seat. But even when there's two captains, one has to be the commander. So uh, we break it down into pilot flying and pilot not flying or pilot monitoring, as it's known now. So PF and PM. Uh, the, the, the actual workload is divided up uh, sort of very clearly. So say I can fly with a pilot uh, tomorrow that I've never met before. And uh, we both know exactly what we're meant to do. So the pilot flying has certain responsibilities. Uh, they sort of contr- actually physically sort of put certain inputs into the plane. The pilot monitoring operates the radios, gets other information, uh, supervises the other pilot to make sure he's, he's done what he's meant to be doing or what she's meant to be doing, that they've inputted the information correctly. So there's a, a constant sort of uh, check and cross-check system. But uh, the bottom line then is that the, the captain, is uh, the person who takes the ultimate responsibility? You often hear people talking about though, the, like, like, uh, the, as if the the the, the there's the only one pilot and the pilot is the captain. Uh, both of us are pilots. Uh, both of us are very qualified. Uh, I can have co-pilots that are maybe 15 years qualified. They're as, as much a pilot as I'm a pilot, but one has to be a captain. So that's, sure. uh, actually, you were asking earlier about fallacies. What do people misunderstand with aviation? That's actually probably a more common one. They think, yeah, no, there's the, the, the pilot and the other guy. There's actually two pilots.
1: <laughs> the pilot and the other guy. Um, All right. There's so many good questions here, but I just don't have time for all of them. So I'm going to just maybe do one or two more. Um, B. Ivana Rasimi stands for Banif Shea, just because I know who this person is. Um, <laughs> How do pilots minimize the risk of VTE, venous thromboembolism, on long flights? You guys wear SCDs? You guys wear like certain like tight stockings? What do you guys do? Uh,
4: it's very hard to work around that. Uh, generally, I don't think most of us wear compression stockings. I don't. Uh, they wouldn't be very comfortable. Uh, like yesterday, say from Dublin to Orlando, it was nearly a nine hour flight. Uh, that would be very uncomfortable wearing compression stockings. Uh, we try and sort of uh, move your legs about uh, sort of in the seat to try constantly uh, sort of flexing and uh, extending your, your ankles and try and keep movement that way. Uh, you're up every few hours to go to the bathroom maybe, but uh, generally it's quite difficult. Uh, we're sitting there for maybe nine hours at a time and you don't have an awful lot of opportunity to move about and you, you can't go walking around the cockpit. You have to be in control of the airplane at all times. So it's difficult to avoid, but uh, I mean, figures wise, I don't see any sort of huge amount of uh, their DVTs or pulmon emboli uh, amongst the, the pilot community. Yeah, that's good to hear. All right, last question. This is from
1: sure. uh, Dr. Judy Melanick. Uh, who's a, in her own right, a fantastic author uh, and pathologist mm. um, at Dr. Judy Melanick. Uh, I'm really interested in how root cause analysis after crashes affects SOPs. I'm assuming that's standard of practices in preventing yeah. crashes and how limits to hours and checklists are strictly enforced to prevent human error. I think we've kind of discussed this, but is there any, any uh, closing thoughts on that topic that you want to leave us with?
4: Uh, well, I think the... the... She's touched on a few very important points there. and I've actually written a book about error that's going to be released in the next couple of months. It should be out hopefully in May and available on Amazon. But uh, when you dig deeper, there's an awful lot more to it than just the root cause analysis. And especially in aviation, it's usually root causes analysis. Uh, there's normally at least uh, six or seven different issues uh, that led to the accident. And I know in the UK, they uh, started uh, a medical and accident investigation board a few years ago, and uh, the guy they put in charge of it was the, the former head of the Air Accident Investigation Board to try and bring a similar sort of concept in. Uh, it hasn't really sort of caught on as much as it should have yet. Again, I think it's going to take a generation to get there. But uh, I think the root cause analysis, like we, we do that even like uh, without an accident. Uh, every airline has a, a, a safety reporting system, it's part of our safety management system structure. So say tomorrow night, if I even have a small incident on the way home to Dublin, I can use our Wi-Fi system. We all have uh, company iPads. I can log on to their safety net system, and there's a drop-down menu where I can feed uh, a certain amount of information in. Uh, there's text boxes where I can uh, flesh it out a bit more if I need to, and then hit send. And it'll be in the air safety office while I'm still airborne. So we're constantly sort of looking at even small issues, because small issues tend to accumulate and become big issues, which then lead to crashes. So we try and sort of anticipate that kind of thing before we get as far as as airline crashes but the root root cause analysis would be part of it, but it'd be quite a small part of it. Uh, Checklists and so on. Uh, Again, that's a big difference between aviation and uh, healthcare. Uh, I was speaking to a group of intensive care nurses in Belfast Monday. Uh, I was uh, teaching a a group of them at the minute, but our human factors approach, and we were discussing checklists. And the the big difference I think in aviation is that my checklist is a laminated A4 sheet, which doesn't leave the airplane. Whereas in healthcare, the focus seems to be getting uh, on getting them signed to prove that them actually happened. Now, I think that we're, we're trusting uh, doctors and nurses. They take an awful lot of responsibility. Uh, they're, they're looking at through some very dangerous drugs. They're doing very uh, important procedures. Like I used to saw chests open. I've got friends who saw skulls open, but they can't be trusted to hand over a piece of information unless they sign to confirm that it happened. Mm. I mean, I, I think that's nonsense. Uh, checklists are very important, but I don't think the health service has really uh, understood fully how checklists are meant to work. I think that we're still focused too much on the legal requirements of a checklist, rather than on the fact that they're actually there as the final ch- safety net uh, to sort of cover me from having the, a major, a major accident or incident.
1: I think I would love to 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 read this book when it comes out. It sounds like, um, we are making some changes. I feel like in the world of medicine, and I do feel like we've adapted this on some levels, but I don't know if it's universal. I think places like the VA may be doing it more than others. Uh, and the uh, places that I work have in, install checklists in surgery, for example, mm. uh, in the ORs. But I feel like it's probably something that could be even more universal than that. Um, and uh, on, the,
4: on the checklist idea, Kev, sorry, to cut across you there. But there was a study published last year in Holland, which again I discussed with the team in Belfast on Monday. Uh, it, was the, it was a pediatric uh, surgery unit, and they took 1,800 cases. And they deliberately introduced 120 errors into the the cases. They see what the checklist, pick them up. Mm. And the score rate was 54%. <laughs> now, one of my checklists, like when I land in Dublin uh, on Friday morning after flying back across the Atlantic, uh, we do a landing check. And part of the landing check is, are my wheels down? So if we had a 50% score rate, that means we would land half of our airplanes with the wheels up every day. So it's uh, I don't think we'll go down well. So, I mean, that that's a big mistake, and there's reasons why that happens. And with, once you actually look into sh- human nature and human cognition and stuff, which is why I've, I've decided to call the book, Oops, Why do Things Go Wrong, because that, that's that's basically what we've been talking about for the last hour here. Yeah. It's, oops, mm-hmm. why Why do things go wrong? And that's, that's the point of the book. And there's very clear explanations as to why they go wrong, like from neuroanatomy, from neurophysiology, and from basic human nature. And that's what the book explores.
1: I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much for coming on. It was really a pleasure. Where where can people find you? Where can people find the book when
4: it's available? Uh, well, the, my company is called Framework Health. Now, the idea in aviation, when anything goes wrong with us, uh, we we default back into a framework. Now, one of the problems uh, that happens in healthcare and aviation, both is the startle reflex, that when something, something big, if you hear a big bang, uh, you get startled. Uh, again, come back into evolution. You go into your fight-or-flight response. Uh, the amygdala uh, just in the lower part of your brain takes over and sort of floods your brain with, uh, with sort of adrenaline and cortisone and stuff. And uh, basically you see a tiger running at you, you don't stand and analyze and think, oh, what will I do with this tiger? Uh, you, you start running. Okay. So the, the idea is that uh, we've got a framework approach to try and stop us ha- uh, having a startle reflex. So I called the company Framework Health. So uh, the website's frameworkhealth.net. Uh, you can get some basic information there. We've got uh, I can be contacted through that. Uh, my TED Talk's on that if people want to have a look at it. Other than that, I'm on Twitter, Twitter quite a bit with at Niall Downey. So N-A-A-L-L-D-O-W-N-E-Y. And I'm on LinkedIn at Niall Downey as well. Uh, as regards to the book, uh, Oops, Why Things Go Wrong, uh, that's going to be available on Amazon.com. Uh, we're hopefully going to have it out uh, around about the middle of May or early June at the latest. And we should hopefully have pre-orders available on Amazon.com before that. So that'll be available worldwide if anybody wants
3: to buy the book.
1: Thank you so much. It's really great. Raja. where can people find you? Or do you want people to find you? I don't know.
3: <laughs> Not at the moment. I am on Twitter, but I have nothing to push. I just want to say thanks to Niall and thanks, Kobe. This is a has <laughs> been a great conversation. That's good. Thanks,
4: Raja. I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, it was great talking to both of you guys. Thank you for the listener questions. They were really... Uh, great. Uh, if I didn't get to yours, I'm sorry. Put one in next time and let me know I didn't get to it, and I will get to it next time, I promise. Um, thank you to Nadine for help with production. Uh, you guys, great chatting. Uh, find me at Twitter, if you like, if that's your thing, at The House of Pod, uh, or just listen to the podcast that you just listened to. Just go ahead and listen to it one more time. Thanks, guys. Bye. I know. cut. It's cutting out again. Shit
3: now can you hear us at all oh no he's not calling us from a plane is he
1: this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns the opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible
0: I'm alive.